no matter how long you have known him, none of us can fathom what it will be like to see the Ancient of Days. Amen. To stand before him. Uh, What a glorious thought that is. What a joy it is to be together, to sing, to fellowship, and of course to feast on the precious word of God. If you would take your copy of scripture in hand and turn to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue our journey through this wonderful letter. In the Christian life, in the process of sanctification, there are many commands that are difficult to obey. You know that well if you've been a Christian for any length of time. We all have our own struggles, we have our own uh, sin packages, if you will, things that are more tempting to us than other things. But I think we could all say universally, at least at some level, we struggle when it comes to waiting with patience. Waiting is hard, isn't it? You know, and waiting with patience at some times seems almost impossible. We learn this from our, early, our very earliest years as children. My earliest memories with the struggle of waiting are surround my birthday and Christmas morning, as probably it does for you. When you are a child and you wait all year long for your birthday, the only thing that surpasses the excitement that you feel on that day is the disappointment you have that evening when you realize it's going to be another year before my birthday comes again. And when you're an eight-year-old boy, a year might as well be a decade. But unfortunately, the, the struggle with waiting doesn't stop after we leave childhood In fact, as we enter into adulthood, we're faced with the realization that our struggle with waiting patiently has just begun. As it turns out, the Christian life is filled with intentional, divinely appointed seasons of waiting. In fact, we come to understand in the gospel as a new believer that a key disposition of the Christian life is that of waiting. We are all in a posture of waiting for the King of Kings to return. Not only that, we are waiting for his many promises to be fulfilled to us. Promises such as the realization of eternal life, glorification, freedom from sin and sorrow and sickness, resurrected bodies and citizenship in his eternal kingdom. And the longer we live as a believer, the more we face the temptation to grow weary and to grow impatient, waiting for the fulfillment of these promises that we so long for. That impatience can lead to weariness, and it can reveal a weak faith over time. And that impatience can reveal that we perhaps have begun to value the promises of God more than God himself at certain times. It's not necessarily that we stop believing the promises of God are true. We just start to doubt whether or not we're capable of holding on long enough to realize them. And yet God has intentional providential plans for us in this process of waiting in each of our lives. God wants to reveal more of himself. He wants to reveal more of his glory, and he wants to produce within us more of his character as he appoints seasons of waiting for us. And in our text this morning, he's going to call us to wait well, to have faith with patience, And this call to to wait is rooted in God himself and rooted in our confident hope in the fulfillment of his promises. As we turn our 
minds back to Hebrews, remember the overarching theme of the superiority of Christ and this, this longer section that we're a part of here in chapter 4 that runs all the way down through the end of chapter 7. This larger section breaks into four parts, and we just finished part number two, a personal admonition and warning. Last week, we closed out that section. We move in now to the third component here, a call to trust God's promise. Throughout that second section, we saw the third warning passage in Hebrews, and the author was taking a pause from his primary subject matter of the priesthood of Christ. The full explanation of Christ's priesthood and its significance will come to us in chapter 7 as he resumes that in the truest sense. But this section that we enter into today really functions as a bridge. It's going to take us from the warning passage that we just saw into a full discussion of the priesthood of Christ in chapter 7. And so he starts to, to turn our attention there again. Picture a, a professional photographer who, who slowly turns the lens of the camera to bring into perfect focus the target of that photograph. That's what's happening here. We've maybe forgotten a little bit of the, the theme of the priesthood of Christ as we looked at this warning passage. But now this morning, the, the lens is going to begin to clarify again this wonderful theme and its significance to us. And so over the next two Sundays, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 13 to 20 in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's read that together, beginning in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie... We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." May God bless the reading of his word this morning. It's our task to look at verses 13 through 18. And what we see in this section is simply this. We are to wait patiently for God's promised salvation secured by Christ, our high priest. Wait patiently for God's promised salvation secured by Christ, our high priest. He explains this in these verses really with three different elements. We'll look at the first two of those elements this morning and save the third element for next Sunday. Really, in, in this first uh, section here, he lays out his argument, and the application of that will come primarily in verses 19 and 20 that we'll look at next week. So we're going to lay the groundwork of his argument here. We'll begin to see how that applies to us, but please come back next week as the fullness of that application will come then. Now remember that where we left off last time, the author was calling us to put aside our spiritual laziness. 
lay aside your, your sluggish uh, spirituality and instead put on in its place imitation, imitation of faithful believers. We, we left off in Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the author's going to stay with that idea of imitation. He introduced it last week, and now he's going to capitalize on that as he brings us back to this primary argument of the priesthood of Christ. And so he, he turns the corner here into this third component of the larger argument on Christ's priesthood by calling us to examine one particular person whose life is worthy of our imitation. It'll be a person very familiar to you. The first element here in our text is that we must observe Abraham's example. Observe Abraham's example, verses 13 to 15. And he'll describe this in two parts. The first part is God's promise proclaimed. God's promise proclaimed. Verse 13 begins, For when God made the promise to Abraham. The word for clues us in to the fact that this still ties into what he said last week when he introduced this idea of imitation, but it also shows us that we're turning the corner slightly now. He's moving, he's not leaving completely what he said, but he's moving us back towards the primary argument. And right out of the gate, he mentions this person, Abraham, a key Old Testament figure. And what I want you to see from the beginning is that while it's true that, that the theme here is that we ought to, to imitate Abraham's example, actually what the author's going to do is, is call us to focus on something that's about God, not, not primarily about Abraham himself. In fact, the, the author wants to solidify something in our minds about the character of God himself. And he's going to do that through this illustration of Abraham, but God really is the focus. You see, the motivation for our response of imitating Abraham is not, is not really rooted in Abraham itself. It's rooted in the character of God that's revealed through this example of Abraham. Specifically, the author calls our attention to a promise that he made to Abraham. Now, every Jewish person in the audience would have immediately understood what promise is being discussed here. This is a reference to the promise that we call the Abrahamic covenant. It was at the heart of the Jewish people, of the significance of the Jewish people, but beyond that, it's at the heart of God's whole plan of redemption. It's crucial that we understand the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and how it relates to you and I. This promise given by God to Abraham is reiterated in several instances in the book of Genesis. In the first instance, it comes in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we have this first mention of this covenant with Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
Now notice there are specific things in this promise given to Abraham and his physical descendants. He's told he'll be a great nation, that that nation will be blessed, that those then who interact with him in the right way will also be blessed, and those who don't will be cursed. But also, at the end of this covenant, it turns the corner from just Abraham and his physical descendants to the whole world. Because it says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a reference to the fact that through the bloodline of Abraham would come the promised Redeemer, the Redeemer that was mentioned back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God promises that from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That now is, is, is given to us here in a, in a focused way in Genesis 12, that it is through the bloodline of Abraham now that we're to expect that promised Redeemer to come. And he will be a Messiah and a Redeemer that is here for the whole world. All the families of the earth will be blessed in him. But from a human perspective, there's a problem here in Genesis 12. Because... By the time this promise comes to Abram, he's already 75 years old. And he and his wife, Sarah, have been unable to conceive. She's barren. And yet, fast forward to chapter 15, and God reiterates the promise again. In Genesis 15, verses 2 to 4, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my household is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. It's in response to this promise that Abram believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. The, the idea of justification by faith that Paul will pick up on in the New Testament. Here in Genesis 15, God actually cuts a covenant through the sacrificial process of sacrificing animals. And he, he passes through, you remember, the, those halves of the animal's body to prove that he's making this covenant with Abraham. This will come to pass. And yet, even still, Abram was made to wait. Sarah was still barren. In fact, Abram would have to wait until he was 100 years old before Isaac would be born. But in Genesis chapter 21, God graciously blesses Sarah and Abraham with a baby boy in their old age. Now in context here in Hebrews, when the author brings up this promise made to Abraham, he doesn't have in mind either of the two examples I just mentioned, chapter 12 or chapter 15. In fact, the author has in mind this third installment of the promise that comes in Genesis 22. We'll turn there in just a moment. But before we turn there and read that passage, I want you to understand exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at. What's this all about? Why is he taking us on this journey back through the example of Abraham? What, what he wants us to understand is not just the fact that God made a promise, but that God made a promise to Abraham in such a way that it was verifiable. It, it was undeniably trustworthy in the particular way that God made the promise. Look back at verse 13 of Hebrews 6. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. 
He swore by himself. Here, what the author is saying is that on this occasion, when God reiterates the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, he confirms that promise beyond a shadow of a doubt by swearing an oath based on his own name. He swears by himself. He he pronounces not just a promise, but a solemn oath to Abraham. And he swears by himself because there's no one greater for him to swear by. The author is going to explain that more in just a moment. But listen to the actual oath that God made to Abram here. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Now, in the Greek text, this is a a, a summary of what God says in Genesis 22. This is this is more of the version of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. But what you need to understand is we can't bring this over into English exactly as it is there because he writes in such an emphatic way. He, he takes the way that you would emphasize something in the Hebrew language and brings it over into the Greek language. And now we've got to try to bring that over into the English language, and it's quite difficult. But notice the word surely. Our attempt in English to show how emphatic this is is wrapped up in the word surely. He doesn't just say, I will bless you and I will multiply you. But God says, Abram, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. What the author wants us to understand is that as God does this, as he adds this oath, he is swearing by his own name. In fact, we'll see it in a moment, but he actually literally swears by his own name in Genesis 22. It's as if he's saying, I want you to know, Abraham, that I will most certainly carry out what I have promised to you. But before we read Genesis 22, where this quote comes from, I need to remind you of the rest of the story. It may have been a while since we were in Sunday school and studied the story of Abraham, but you'll remember that when God finally blesses Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, at the age of 100 for Abraham, I'm sure that they thought that their long trial of waiting was over. It had finally come to an end. After some 25 years of waiting, God had given them a baby boy. But just a few years later, as Isaac now has grown into a boy, something happens. In Genesis 22, 1-2, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now suddenly the promise that had seemed to finally be secure comes into question. And unimaginably, unthinkably, God calls Abraham to cut off the promised son by his own hand. This is gut-wrenching. This is, this is unthinkable on so many levels. First of all, to sacrifice your own son is beyond our wildest imaginations. But then to add to that the fact that in this son, this promised son, rested all of the promises of God. And God is saying, Abraham, I want you to to destroy it all. I want you to kill your own son. And I want you to put in jeopardy again all the promises that I've made. What's what's Abraham going to do? Well, 
Verse 3, Genesis chapter 2. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham remains unwavering in his faith and his trust in God to the point that he sets out immediately as soon as he can the next day to go about obeying this difficult command. And scripture would rec will record that he obeyed to the point that he took the knife in hand with his son bound there on the altar, ready to slay his own son as God had commanded. And there at the last moment, as you remember, God intercedes and he provides another sacrifice that will take the place of Isaac. Of course, we understand this was a test of the faith of Abraham, but also a foreshadowing of the fact that one day the true son of promise, Jesus Christ himself, would be laid on that altar, so to speak, on the cross, and there would be no other sacrifice. He would be the sacrifice for all. Hopefully we understand the significance of that. But it's in response to that act on behalf of Abraham that we read the words the author's quoting in Hebrews. It's this instance of the reiteration of the promise to Abraham that the author has in mind. And it comes here in Genesis 22, right after this scene with Isaac. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. There it is. By myself. I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice there the oath of God by myself. I have sworn. It is this oath that the author of Hebrews has in mind, and his point here for us is to see the certainty of God's fulfillment of his promise is guaranteed beyond a shadow of a doubt. And these promises are worthy of the trust of Abraham and of our trust today because they are built on the character of God himself. Now keep that in mind as we move forward because it will be significant again here in a moment. He's setting up a larger argument that will apply to us. But notice now the second part of this first element of Abraham's example, part two, God's promise obtained. God's promise obtained. Verse 15, And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Speaking of Abraham. Abraham waited patiently in faith for the promise of God, and he receives that promise from God really twice, if you think about it. He receives the promise of God when Isaac is born, but then in a symbolic way, he receives it a second time when Isaac is delivered from death. Obviously, when the author says that he obtained the promise, he doesn't mean that Abraham lived to see all of the promise. He didn't live into the time of Christ, of course, but he receives the first fruit of the promise. And in that way, he received the, the sure promise of God. And so in this example, the author of Hebrews wants us to note two things primarily. One, he wants us to note the character of God that guaranteed his promise. And number two, the reception of God's promise comes as a result of waiting with patient faith 
The reception of the promise comes as a result of waiting with patient faith. Understand, the author doesn't want us just to step back and marvel at this example of Abraham. He's not intending for us just to have our intellect uh, stirred and our emotions excited over what God has done in the past. No, he wants us to take to heart what God has done in the past and then be motivated to imitate the faith of Abraham by realizing the character of God. Remember, all of this comes on the heels of God telling us through the author of Hebrews that we're to put off spiritual laziness and to get up and obey and to imitate the faithful. So now, element number two, not only should we observe Abraham's example, but we are to imitate Abraham's example, verses 16 to 18. This second element also breaks down neatly into two parts. The first part we'll call the oaths of men. The oaths of men. Look back at the text, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves. Men swear by one greater than themselves. Now, at this point, the author addresses a question that may have come to your mind as we went through that first section. And the question is this. Why would God feel the need to swear? Why would God ever feel the need to take an oath about anything? After all, Jesus taught us that we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Well, first of all, understand that instruction by Christ was to a group of Jews who were flippantly uh, using vows in a way that was never prescribed by God or intended by God. He's not universally forbidding the taking of oaths in that passage. But secondly, understand that God didn't take an oath for his own benefit, but for the benefit of you and me, for the benefit of man. It's a common practice among people in general to take oaths and to swear whenever we want someone to really believe us. This is certainly true in legal speech. This is why we still have people put their hand on the Bible. Even in our, our you know, morally forsaken culture, you still put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. But we understand that kind of oath that's needed there to say, I'm appealing to a higher power over me that I will tell the truth. But even in common conversation, you know, taking an oath or swearing is very, very common. Someone might say, no, seriously, I promise I'm telling the truth. Or, or hand to God, I'm telling the truth. Or I swear on my mother's grave, someone may say. These are common phrases that we hear in our culture as people swear or take an oath in an attempt to get people to believe them. The reason, of course, is because we understand the heart of man, that man's tendency is to lie and exaggerate and manipulate. And so when we just say something like, my fish was this big, Everyone's eyebrows raised just a little bit. And so we need to add, I promise my fish was this big, right? That's the idea. Understand that when we swear, what we're doing is we're appealing to a higher authority. Man always appeals to someone higher than himself when he swears or takes an oath. And in that act, what we're saying is I'm holding myself accountable to that higher authority that if I'm not telling the truth, then let the consequences from that higher authority come upon me. That's how serious I am about what I'm saying. That's why when we make an oath or when we swear, the author of Hebrews says, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. You give the oath, and then someone says, okay, okay, we believe you. We believe you. You're telling the truth. 
But even legally in the Old Testament, Exodus 22 prescribed legal oaths to be taken in certain cases. For example, verse 10, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or an animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one's looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. This is a legal oath where the man says, I promise I did not harm that animal. It wasn't my fault. And the neighbor then is to take his word as he makes that oath before God. And so both in casual conversation and in legal uh, situations, we understand that oaths and swearing are a common part of human culture. And so what God does here is he makes an oath not for his benefit, but for ours. That brings us to part number two, and this really is the climax. This is the point of what he's been driving at. We'll call it the oath of God, the oath of God. He begins here by saying in verse 17, in the same way God. So he gave the illustration of how human beings use oaths and swear all the time. And then he says, in the same way, God. What he's highlighting here is that God made a conscious choice to do something that would connect as an illustration with us as human beings because we do this all the time. But here he's going to explain why God chose to do this and how this oath of God should affect you and me. What's the significance of this? Well, notice he goes on, verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise to show to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? Well, we've already determined earlier that when we look at the promise made to Abraham, that though there were aspects made to Abraham and his descendants, there's also a huge part of that promise that applies to you and me. We, by faith, are heirs of the promise. And that's the intention here. Remember Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 to 29, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, listen to this, then you are Abraham's descendants Heirs according to promise. This is the overlap of language here. We see these heirs of promise in Hebrews and the heirs of promise here in Galatians by the pen of Paul. We by faith then are descendants of Abraham's promise. Spiritually speaking, the promise is applied to us in Christ. And so here when the author of Hebrews refers to the heirs of promise, he's talking about you if you're in Christ. If you've placed your faith in Christ alone, you are an heir of the promise of Abraham because through Christ all the nations will be blessed. But notice he says, desiring even more to show or to demonstrate to the heirs of promise. So God made his oath here, stay with me. God made his oath to show us something, to demonstrate something to you and to me. What is it? Well, verse 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, the unchangeableness of his purpose. God has demonstrated for you and me, if you're in Christ, 
that his sovereign purposes and his decrees are concrete. They're unchanging. They are immutable, as he is immutable. In other words, he's done something to show us definitively that his promises are worthy of our trust and worthy of our faith and our patience. What has he done? What's he done to demonstrate to us the heirs of the promise that this is true of him? Well, it says here in verse 17, in order to demonstrate the unchangeableness of his purpose, God interposed with an oath. God interposed with an oath. He confirms the reliability of his promise towards us by following the normal human pattern of swearing an oath. And now it's here that this passage begins to bridge us back to the priesthood of Christ. Here we are, we're turning from the warning passage and he's bringing us back to the primary focus of Christ's priesthood. Now many commentators believe that the author here is still referring to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. But I think something else is happening here. As you look at the broader context, we are heirs of the promise of Abraham and he's made another promise to us on top of that promise is the idea here. And when you look at this, it's got to refer to the fact that we, the spiritual heirs of Abraham by faith, have received a, another gracious oath of God that is coming to fulfillment and it is the, the root of our assurance. Why is it that we can continue to have assurance of hope in our salvation? It's because of this second oath that's been made to us. We, we already have the first oath and we, we, our faith depends on the Christ who came through the bloodline of Abraham, but to those of us who are heirs of that promise, another promise has been made. And it was made back in chapter five. We saw it a while ago now and we've probably forgotten, but let's look back at where this all began. This all began back in Hebrews five, verses five to six. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this entire section that we've been studying started here with this quote from Psalm 110. And we're going to be returning to it here shortly in chapter 7. It, it's easy for us to, to kind of lose our way as we go through the warning passage we just came through and forget that all of this is rolling out of this quote in Hebrews 5 here. But nonetheless, I believe the author's picking back up where he left off and he's turning our, our view again to this promise that's been made of Christ as the great high priest. And this provides then the ongoing assurance and hope of our eternal salvation. How can we, the heirs of the promise of Abraham, be sure that we will receive that promise in its final form? It is because not only do we have the promise verified to Abraham, but on top of that we have another promise verified to us that that seed that came through Abraham has accomplished what he said he would accomplish, and he's securing it even now, standing at the right hand of the Father. That's the promise made to us. We'll see this a little more clearly next week in verses 19 to 20 when he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 7, the author will refer to the, this priesthood of Christ coming with an oath. Chapter 7, verses 20 to 21, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, that's the, the priests under the line of Aaron, but he, Christ, with an oath, through the one who said to him, listen to this, the Lord has sworn, here's the oath, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This is an expanded version of Psalm 110 and the quote that we read in chapter 5. Christ's priesthood then is confirmed by a divine oath just as God's promise to Abraham was confirmed by a divine oath. Now you might say that's, that's wonderful, but what is the significance? What does that mean to me? Well, he tells us. He tells us here in verse 18. So that, he's interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. Now, let's stop there for just a moment. The significance of God taking an oath, both to Abraham and here about Christ's priesthood, is the fact that it solidifies the trustworthiness of this statement because it's based on the character of God himself. And God has doubled down here. God has, has based the the, the truthfulness of this promise on his character twice. That's why he says, by two, two unchangeable things. What are the two unchangeable things? Well, first of all, the first unchangeable thing is the statement itself. The first time that God says, I'm going to do this. The second unchangeable thing is the oath. I swear I'm going to do this. Now you have God doubly promising the same promise. And the reason that significance is because it's based on the fact that God, by nature, cannot lie. Remember Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, or has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, 27 to 29. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. The author's reminding us here that God by nature is truth. Everything that God does is true. Every word that God says is true because it's based on the nature of God himself. So when God speaks here, he speaks the truth because he always only ever speaks the truth. The first time, in the middle, and at the end. And so for God to add an oath to a statement that's already built on his nature of truth, only doubles down again on the nature of God. And the significance of that, you want to know what it means for us? It means we are fools if we don't believe the promise of God. That's what it means. It means to lack faith in God's promises is the height of arrogance and foolishness. Because he's doubled down on himself 
and says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then you don't believe who I am. It, it, it is to call into question the character of God himself. Disbelief is an attack on God. Understand that. To reject the words of God is to reject that God is who he says he is. Understand there's no imaginary universe in which we can pick and choose the things of God's word that we will and will not believe, all the while having a right relationship with God. You cannot do it. Because to pick and choose what you will and will not believe means you have not fundamentally come to God as God has revealed himself to be. To know God and to have a relationship with God necessitates that you believe God to be who God says he is. To de deny even one of his words is to deny God himself. Because he cannot lie, and therefore either all of his words are true or none of them are true. This really leads us to the starting place for the gospel. Many times we try to treat the gospel almost as an island and in separation from other doctrines. But understand that you can't handle the gospel apart from theology proper. That is, who God is himself, the doctrine of God. Because to come to the gospel of God and to believe the gospel of God means you first have to come to God as God and believe God to be who God says he is. Understand, if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have a real problem because you are separated by your sin from a holy God who is your creator. God has revealed himself to be the omnipotent God, the only God, the holy God who is perfect in nature to every degree. Whether or not you believe in God really has no bearing on the fact that God is God. You have to humble yourself and come to the understanding that your sin has separated you from this good and holy God, but that God in his grace and mercy has chosen to make a way for you and his son, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins and to be raised again to life on the third day, and as we're studying here, has then seated him at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest to intercede for his people forever. The Bible says if you will humble yourself coming to God as the holy God he reveals himself to be and repent of your sins, believing in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be forgiven and made right with that holy God and thereby receive eternal life, then you will be saved from the wrath of God over your sin. This is the gospel. But the gospel is true because it's rooted in the God who is true. It's God's gospel, and we can believe it because we can believe him. But for those of us in Christ, I want you to see that all that we've studied so far this morning has been intended by the author and the Holy Spirit for your encouragement. This whole exercise of reminding ourselves of the history of the Abrahamic covenant and these promises and talking about God's oath and doubling down on his character, it's all been for the purpose of giving you encouragement, Christian. And I say that because the author says that clearly here. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge 
would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Notice how he describes believers. The fact that God has doubly affirmed his promise of Christ, the one who came through the line of Abraham and is seated as, as the right hand of, at the right hand of God as our great high priest, he's an encouragement for those of us who have taken refuge in him, it says. This is what it is to be a Christian. It is to realize I've got to hide myself in Christ because if it's me coming on my own terms, I can't make it. I cannot stand before a holy God as I am. I have to be clothed in the righteousness of someone else. I need the righteousness of Christ applied to me. And so the believer repents and believes in Christ, thereby taking refuge in Christ. He is my hope. He is the source of my, my hope and the reason why I know that I will not be forsaken or cast out from the presence of God because I'm not there on my own merit. I'm there on the merits of Christ. This is what it is to hide yourself in Christ. This is why the Bible talks about believers being baptized into Christ. We take refuge in him. He's like a a refuge from the storm, the storm of God's wrath. He's, He's the source of our hope, and he has accomplished it. And if we are in Christ, then we are the beneficiaries of the fact that Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father, unceasingly serving as our great high priest. Does that encourage you? That should encourage you, Christian. In fact, it shouldn't just encourage you. The author says, this is so that you would have strong encouragement. So that you would be fortified in your soul as you think about salvation. The reality of your eternal security before God if you're in Christ. Have strong encouragement. And that strong encouragement, he says, is to take hold of the hope set before us. I love that verb. Take hold of it. Reach out and grab a hold of hope, Christian. The hope that is set before you in Christ. Remember that the word hope in the New Testament is not like the way we use the word hope often in the English language. When we say we hope something will happen, we mean there's a lot of doubt as to whether or not it will actually happen, but we sure would like for it to happen. That's not what the Greek word for hope means. Hope here is a sure confidence It is the knowledge that this will come to pass, and I'm waiting patiently in faith for what I'm confident will come to pass. This is not a wishy-washy hope. This is not an emotional kind of hope. This is a hope that's built on faith in the truth of what God has said. And we understand now that our faith has a true resting place because it rests not in ourselves, but on the character of God himself. God says, I'm going to double down on this. This will be the bedrock of your hope that I have sworn that I will bring it to pass. And I cannot lie. What greater encouragement exists than this, Christian? Who else would you rather have representing you before the Father, guaranteeing your salvation, than the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And here we have these two great promises Coming together, two Old Testament promises, the promise that the Redeemer would come through the line of Abraham, he has come, and the promise that having come, he's now the great high priest at the right hand of the Father forever, interceding for us. This is our strong, great encouragement. Next week, we will apply that in the fullest sense, but this morning, as we walk away, meditating on these things, there are some clear applications that we need to take to heart. The first one is simply this. 
take hold of hope. Take hold of it. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then hold on to assurance this morning that God will bring you through whatever you're going through in your circumstance safely home to eternity, to eternal salvation, because he has promised to do so and he's based that promise on himself and it cannot fail. Let me ask you, have you allowed your circumstances to cause you to grow weary and to take your eyes off of Christ? Think about it. Why, of all the Old Testament figures, and of course Abraham is a monumental Old Testament figure, but of all the ones he could have pointed to, why Abraham, to make this illustration? Well, can you think of a greater test of your faith than for God to tell you to sacrifice your own son who is the the, the heir, the promised child? I don't think so. I can't think of a circumstance in life in which I would be more tempted to grow weary in my faith or begin to question, God, what are you doing here? And so arguing from the greater to the lesser, whatever you're going through, we are to imitate the faith of Abraham that's rooted in the character of God. The same God who made the promise to Abraham has made it to you and me. And so when our circumstances cause us to to grow weary and shaky in our faith in God, we are to, to recall to mind who God is and to take hold of the hope that is in Jesus Christ. God will see me through. God will not fail. I can have assurance and hope in him. That's the message of this passage. Not only should we take hold of hope, but really another way of saying it is wait in faith. Wait in faith. When the trials and temptations of life grow heavy and, and we long to find our, ourselves with Christ and we're, we're tempted then to second-guess God and his promises because of the difficulties of circumstances, we're to wait with faith. You know, we are focusing on the really greatest moment of faith in Abraham's life in Genesis 22, but if you know all of Abraham's story, you remember there was a moment in which his faith wavered He tried to help God bring about the promise a little faster. Maybe I could just have a child through this other woman and God will bless that as the promise. Sometimes when the waiting gets long and we get weary, we try to maybe help it along through our own means. But what we're to learn here is the lesson of Abraham. Don't do that. No, come to the place where Abraham was as an old man where he recognized, even if I kill my own son, the son of promise, God will bring the promise to pass, even if he has to raise him from the dead, but I won't doubt him again. That's to be the kind of waiting with faith that we're to have. And then finally, wait with patience. Wait with patience. For many of us, we We love Christ, we love the word, we believe it. We don't really struggle to wait with faith in the sense that we never stop believing God, but we do struggle to wait with patience. And what we find is that impatience with God is a gateway to all kinds of other sins. When we're impatient with God, what we're essentially saying is that my perception of what the timeline should be is better than God's actual timeline. And it turns out that impatience with God is actually just another form of disbelief. And impatience with God produces bitterness and anger 
and discontentment and selfishness and anxiety and fear. And so the key then is to imitate not only the faith of men like Abraham, but the patience of men like Abraham. When we grow impatient in our walk with the Lord and and heaven's blessings seem so far away, we're to remind ourselves of the character of God himself and to say, wake up. What am I doing distrusting God? Have I forgotten the character of God? Have I left room for God to do what God always does, to be faithful? It's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here is wake up from your sluggishness, Christian. Wake up from your, your, your choice to sort of lay around and, because your circumstances are hard and get up and believe again and wait with patience. And how do you know if you're waiting with patience? Well, it's when you're in the midst of the difficulties and trials of life, you don't quit. You keep reading the scripture. You keep praying. You keep meditating on truth. You keep serving the body. You keep fellowshipping. You keep serving. You keep going. When the way gets tough, you don't throw in the towel. When the way seems blocked, as if there's no way I'm going to make it through that hole or that mountain, it just can't be done, you keep going and you say, God will make a way. He's faithful. He will see me through. That's what it is to wait patiently, is to keep trusting, keep obeying, even when that obedience seems as if it's calling into question the end result. Abraham's obedience seemed to bring the promise into question. And yet he knew it was always better to obey God and trust God than to try his own way. And God was faithful. And so let us then imitate the faithful by meditating on our God. And remember, our assurance of eternal salvation is secure Because the one who came, the promised one of Abraham, stands now having accomplished his work of redemption, interceding as our great high priest. May you have strong encouragement in that truth today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that it stretches us, stretches our minds as we realize the beauty of your plan of redemption. It is intricate. On the one hand, it's simple enough that a a child can easily understand it and yet complex enough that the greatest minds of history have, have wrangled over these things as we marvel at what you've done. God, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you that the promised one has come and he's coming again. God, help us to hold on in hope, to take hold of it, to have assurance of our faith, not in ourselves, but in what Christ has done and the ministry that he does even now on our behalf. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who are weary. Pray for those who are beaten down by trial and temptation. I pray for those who are perhaps on the height of the mountains of life and experiencing the blessings of life and are tempted because of those blessings to take their leisure and to take their eyes off of Christ. God, whether we're in the valley or on the mountain's peak or anywhere in between, help us to hold on, to take hold of hope, to wait with patient faith, knowing that our faith rests on a good, unchanging God. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.